it opens up the perspectives and and everybody has a voice in a sense that allows the tree to to speak out his, uh, his mind and and then the the human speaker to to, to reply when you uh, look at it from the ecological lens or perspective we we quickly and immediately recognize that we are in this web we are in this interrelated web uh, with other creatures with other species with other uh, objects and things that uh, co uh, inhabit the earth or the world with us Hej och välkommen till Radio Rakel. Du hörde på Ugräs. Idag så ska vi inte snacka om en enkel plante, men jag ska snacka med en person och detta intervju blir på engelsk. Today we have a special guest, Isa Mala. He is a writer, poet, editor, translator, and a PhD student in comparative literature at the uh, Aarhus University in Denmark. So he's not actually in Norway, but I thought uh, his uh, work and his award-winning poems was interesting enough to bring in here. So his uh, his subject uh, on his dissertation is post-colonial eco-criticism in the Congo Basin. This program, UGES, has been running since 2017, but this is actually the third male person I'm interviewing. So uh, welcome to this program. Thank you, Marie, for having me here. It's actually uh, no, no, a privilege. Isa Mala, first, uh, I wanted to ask you something I ask all of my guests, which is, if there's any particular plant that you have a special relationship with? Mm, yeah, I think uh, I have lots of them. I have lots of them, but I would choose one for this occasion. Thank you. And, uh, and it's what we call the fig tree. Fig tree, but it's not the fig tree that bears figs, the figs we eat. But instead, uh, another variety uh, of the fig tree, which is used most especially in traditional rituals in, in Bursa, where I come from, in Bursa Kingdom, in Cameroon, where I come from. So uh, you usually find this tree, we call it uh, in my Bursa language. We, the Bursa language is also called Itenga Bursa. So in Itenga Bursa, we call that uh, fig tree Fugvum. We call it Fugvum, and it is usually planted uh, in the courtyards of um, chiefs and kings. So like if you go to the uh, our palace, the, the main palace, because we have a, a, a king called the Fawn uh, and many other kings, uh, uh, smaller kings called chiefs, uh, also called a Bantek, you usually find this uh, tree planted at the middle of the courtyard. Uh-huh. And, yeah, and it's very uh, important for us, both symbolically, but also materially and, and, and spiritually, because it, it, it saves the purpose of uh, rituals, performance, and also connects the people to the ancestors, and in a sense, the, the, the bigger God. So I feel that I, I really have a great liking and connection with the fig tree, the fig tree. That sounds like a very special tree. 
it's a very special tree we pour like the one in the in our um, central palace in our central palace it is very important for rituals it's, it's where we pour the, the, the king called the fon the fon he, he pours libations there and also when we have um, uh, dead celebrations uh, people gather there uh, and, and then masquerades and other traditional and cultural dance groups usually dance around it or, or either below it and yeah so it's a, it's a place of communion and and then we, we also read the signs on it if there is something wrong in the community we can read the signs on the leaves of it or on the trunk of it and we'll be able to take action uh, uh, spiritually and, and otherwise can you uh, tell us something like sensory, how this tree looks or um, how it feels to be uh, under the tree? Mm, I think when you are under that tree, uh, you have the, the feeling of, yeah, it, it, it gives out this air of sacredness uh, all on its own. And, and it also gives you that feeling of being at home. It really connects you with the land, especially for those who have been outside of the, the kingdom for, for a long time when you return. And then you, there is an occasion that warrants you to be there and you find yourself under that tree. You, you always have that special feeling. Uh, yeah, and it has a kind of tiny leaves, uh, and then, uh, but not so tiny. And, and what happens is that because we have two main seasons, we, not like here in Europe where we have uh, four seasons, we rather have two main seasons, which are the dry season and the rainy season. And so what happens is that in the uh, dry season, which is like uh, winter here uh, in a type, but actually sunny, when it is coming, uh, then the, the, the tree sheds off its leaves and so it signals the beginning of the dry season. And so when the rainy season starts approaching, then the leaves, uh, especially when the rains fall, the leaves will, will, will grow again. So it plays all these kind of functions, the, the meteorological function, you would say, and then also the, the sacred and spiritual uh, function and connections to the land and to the ancestors and to the people, past and present and future, I think. It's very special. Thank you. Mm, sounds... Uh... Amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, to have that tree. I was wondering, um, I'd like to soon uh, hear one of your poems, but before we, we go into the poetry, I was wondering if you could say something uh, more about your relationship to plants around you, uh, where you live, um, just kind of in the daily life, how, how plants are uh, part of your life. Uh, yeah, recently, I think in October, I moved house. Uh, I changed my address and I, I, I'm in a more convenient environment now. Maybe I might not like some other reasons about it, but uh, I am in a place now where there is a lot of open space and also plants around uh, in different forms. We have trees, but we also have grass and shrubs and, and stuff like that, which were a bit lacking or they were not so much in my previous address. And right from my childhood, uh, because I grew up in a rural community, our kingdom is rural and to a, to a large extent. And and then most of our parents were farmers, so we have this very special connection right from birth with 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 nature, with with the outside world, with the plants, with the animals, but but especially the plants. So and 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 then again we have uh, some nomadic uh, people who surround us and they rear cattle. 
and, and they have a lot of land, vast expanses of land for rearing, uh, for rearing cattle. And I usually feel so comfortable when I visited those kind of areas where you have a vast expanse of land with some kind of not very tall shrubs where animals graze. And then I think uh, where I live now actually in Aarhus reminds me of all those places. So and it simultaneously creates some kind of uh, nostalgia in me, but it also makes me feel that, I mean, that in those places all at, all at once. And I really do not feel comfortable inside big cities or any city where we find more of just buildings, building bomber to bomber with other buildings and stuff like that. I, 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 feel, I find it more lively and, yeah, more lively, more healthy and, and happier when I'm surrounded by this kind of plants. And then, you know, once they are there, there are also these birds that are there, other animals like rabbits, rats, and, and so on and so forth. So you are in a whole community with many other beings. So, and I find it uh, amazing mm. and lifely. Well, I'm happy to hear that you are living in a place like that. Sure. That's uh, important to, to be able to connect, right? Sure, sure. And it's also uh, not just about the connections to, to this nature, but also one thing is that I, 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 usually when I walk around uh, the trees and the plants and the, the empty spaces around where I live now, I, I tend to be quite productive in terms of inspiration. I usually, like, if I walk around those areas and I'm all alone, uh, I tend to, to be able to, to develop lots of nice ideas for writing, whether poetry or, or, or books for children or any other genre. I would like to read uh, a poem uh, called Friends from Forest, which was published in my collection in 2012 called Chaining Freedom. Friends from Forest. I am on my way from Guaykele, scorching hot human fui sun. Left, right, front, back, I spin. Nothing human can help. Then my forest friend sees my plot. He says, come and take shelter in my shed. Then I rush to save my life. Here lies bright, whispers my forest friend in my ear. Thanks for the shed, I reply. Sweet, fresh, cold air caresses me. The rivers of sweat on my face disappear. But you have been cutting my brothers and sisters, he tells me. Shame and guilt engulf me. The joy on my face disappears. Brother, we are sorry. Too naive to your goodness we were, I tell to my friend, looking up to his branches. Birds chirp and leap from branch to branch. Where? In the leafy rooms that host the birds. Then on my knees I go to pray God. Lord, we did not know that our lives depend on trees. Now we will plant and protect these friends 
to God, I say, thanking him, I know in one there are three. Mm, thank you. You're welcome. It feels that the tree feels so generous. You kind of really uh, express that quality of uh, of being generous and it's like uh, as if the tree kind of reaches out mm -hmm. it's quite generous and and also it comes across as uh, that being that does not keep grudges i think yes that sort of moment of realization mm -hmm. of like our species has um has actually caused so much damage do you think there is such a thing as a public guilt yeah yeah, I think I think I agree with you that there is a sense of public, uh, collective, but also individual guilt in the point uh, from the part of the human uh, speaker, but also humans as represented by that human speaker. We we speak about collective guilt when it comes to like, for instance, I have both Norwegian and uh, British ancestry, and there's so much. Uh, collective guilt when it comes to the history and everything mm -hmm. that's that's kind of easy to recognize but then there's a whole other layer of collective guilt when it comes to other species yeah and uh yeah i i appreciate that that's uh that yeah it kind of i feel like it comes out yeah I'm glad. I'm glad to know that from you. Uh, yeah, because you and generally uh, uh, this guilt. Uh, I think what is uh, also interesting about the the sense of guilt here is that this this guilt expressed uh, towards uh, uh, species beings that uh, previously not many people did that. Uh, I think like we are the guilt is being expressed uh, towards uh, trees and uh, and 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 previously. Or even up to now, some people still do not think that they need to feel uh, any sense of guilt or, or, or sorrow or apology for the kind of things we may do to trees or to, or to nature more generally. Mm. And many of the things that we have done and that we do is also a habit. We sometimes don't notice unless, you know, we, we manage to hear the voice, right? Like in this poem, the voice of actually a tree saying, by the way, this is what's, uh, this is what's happened. Yeah. You say the tree is it's like a, it's a male. Um, is there any reason for, for this particular tree being male? I personally, when I'm out, uh, outside, sometimes... <laughs> I feel like some trees kind of are more male and others are more female and, and you can kind of look at them and, and botanically recognize uh, a sort of if they're mixed gender or, or one or the other. Yes, yes. I think like you too, I, I believe and I always have that feeling and I think it's true that trees are gendered, uh, we have male and female trees and I think that even in a spiritual realm, uh, people, herbalists and people who uh, operate in that realm, especially in my community, yeah, they have that that belief to that trees, uh, we have the male and the female of trees. But for this particular tree, I would not think that there was a very specific reason for, 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 for letting it be male. But perhaps I think, because when I look back now and, and, and to that uh, experience I had with the tree that gave me the inspiration for this point, I'm thinking about the tree, uh, the, the height of the tree was quite tall and and then 
but the the trunk was not um, quite big or quite fleshy and that in a sense is the way we or some of us picture uh, the male figure in my community like we usually sometimes have the impression that the male figure is uh, maybe not very I, I don't want to say fat but I think not very fleshy but quite tall sometimes and then we tend to yeah or we tend to conceive of uh, uh, women folk as being more fleshy but not so tall maybe that plays into the whole scheme of and then also another another thing I guess now as I look back at the point on your question is that it might also be a projection of uh, me the male part that that, that went through the truth. but then luckily the, the, the rest of the point makes it clear uh, that the, the trees are both male and female especially when the, the tree is is complaining on behalf of uh, his uh, siblings uh, or his siblings he says that you have been cutting my brothers and my sisters mm-hmm. yeah. And I was, I was wondering as well, because you, um, you're sort of within uh, poetry um, and academia as well, um, which is, uh, in my eyes, kind of two quite different um, areas where one can uh, sort of work and, uh, and get through to people and sort of you hit um, different places like the heart or the brain or like different areas of, uh, of recognition in the body for, for, for your work so I was wondering um, what you think like how you think those different tools can be used within the relation between humans and, and the plants or or our uh, our understanding of that it's not very unusual to find uh, writers and poets who are also academics uh, but also I think uh, it's quite interesting in the case of uh, uh, academics that has uh, a relationship or a, a soft spot for, for, for plants and animals and other species and beings in the world. So I would say, um, first, uh, I would say that it's a kind of activist. It's not like I should say a kind of, actually, these two things permit me specifically talking about environmental and ecological problems and climate change, uh, uh, poetry and other forms of writing, and then my uh, work as an academic, all of them permit me to be able to address uh, these concerns with uh, more uh, hope and more optimism that I will reach uh, different forms of audiences. Uh, And so, like, Sometimes there are people who might not want to read an academic paper published in a peer-reviewed journal, for example, but who may be uh, lovers of poetry, who may have a a special uh, love for poetry or short stories or the novel. So that's one way. And then, uh, but there may be some who want to read both the poetry or the the fiction and then also uh, the academic articles in monographs then there might be some who just like to read the monographs and stuff like that, or, or who read the monographs and the poetry but cannot write them. So what it, it really does for me is that it gives me that allowance to be able not only to comment on or to analyze and to critically engage with other people's uh, take uh, on environmental problems, but it also gives me uh, the opportunity to, to approach 
those environmental issues by myself and sometimes I can be able to feel what I may perceive as gaps perhaps through my academic writing. So the bottom line is poetry and uh, academic uh, work for me in, in the area of uh, environmental and ecological problems and climate change are both tools of not only uh, knowledge exchange, knowledge production, but also tools of uh, raising awareness and tools that can help in shaping uh, people's mentalities and relationships to, 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 to the environment, to, to ecology, to other species, to the modern human world. So I find all of them saving me that purpose of activism. So poetry on the one hand, yeah, poetry on the one hand as a medium of literary activism, and then my academic research in eco-criticism as a medium of uh, uh, environmental literary activism, but more specifically what uh, some scholars like uh, Scott Slovik and the rest call uh, scholarly activism or academic activism. Well, that's uh, raising awareness is, is uh, really important these days. Yeah, yeah, and also engaging with the complex, the complexities and the ambiguities uh, that, that, that surround uh, questions of ecology, questions of climate change, because we all acknowledge that climate change and um, ecological problems have come as a result of some of our the cultural practices of humans. And then because literature and academic research are also part of the cultural dynamism of human beings, it means that we can be able, through these things, to maybe reshape uh, 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 the, the connections and also the assumptions that underpin some cultural practices and beliefs. Hmm. Yeah. The poem I will be reading now is called Filtered Rays, like the rays of the sun. So, and it was published in my collection Bites of Insanity in 2015. Filtered Rays. It's a sunny morning in December. The infant sun's rays are hot like an ember. The unveiled oriental rays are indeed blinding. My eyes scan skies, not knowing what they are finding. To a tree territory, my friendly feet move. These few tree survivors, my eyes from dangers remove. The naked sun's sons slant through leafy branches and lose their cruel nakedness to these brotherly branches. These bridal rays now cast my shadow onto the green lawns opposite the window. Like bride and groom, my eyes and rays maintain while my rejoicing shadow and grass remain. On my knees, I go down to confess man's cruelty to trees and grass guarantors of our success mm. thank you you're welcome what is success 
Good one. Good question. Success will be multidimensional. The very first thing is that um, capitalists will take success to mean the accumulation of wealth. But success here for me, um, ex by the time I was writing this poem, uh, is more or less in the terms of actually maybe feeding yourself, treating yourself when you are ill, perhaps maybe also being rich, but not being super worldly. But today, when I look at it again with um, the experience that I'm gathering along in my research in eco-criticism, I will say in one word that success here should be happiness. That's lovely. I'm glad you like that. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's a good definition. I feel like the filtered rays and the friends from the forest, both of them have this uh, element of shadow as a very positive um, thing. And this really interests me because shadow uh, is, is often seen as kind of unknown or sort of hiding or you know sort of slightly negative darkness yeah yeah mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but here you know it's it's turned around and it's it's super positive yeah. and is 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 that the way you you see shadow mm, it depends on which shadow i see <laughs> it depends on which shadow i see but i think that generally i, I see shadows in a positive sense i don't know if it is because i come from the tropics because I come from Cameroon in Africa, which is tropical for the most part, or if not all of it, where usually there is a lot of sunshine. And, and so even a human shadow, because sometimes when I, I just remember now when we were in school, or even when we go out for gatherings and some kind of uh, celebrations and, and stuff like that, and people gather around and they're watching uh, a performance or, or, or stuff like that. And then the sun, even this during the dry season, the sun is so hot, when I was a child, most of us would like to go uh, maybe where there are tall people, tall adult people, and would try to stand in their shadow. So, <laughs> so I know that yes, of course, uh, there is a, a sense in which some people perceive shadows as being uh, precursors of the darkness and evil, or think something to be dreaded, something actually to fear. But I, it seems to me that. For the most part, I have had a very positive relationship with shadows, uh, even human shadows, but most uh, importantly, uh, shadows from trees. And, and that's where yeah, I find a lot of this uh, communion, a lot of this come together, a, a lot of these uh, embrace across species happening uh, between humans and plants or even other animals, because not only human beings take shelter under the shadows of trees, even other animals. When it is hot, or, or sometimes even when it is raining, we find other animals like goats, like cows. Mm -hmm. uh, they also go under trees to, to take uh, shelter uh, under the shadow of trees. Yeah, and then just as we were speaking, and then you asked this question, I also thought about another ins instance of a positive shadow, which comes from again another uh, being that is not a human. So uh, it comes from like the image of the fowl when a fowl actually opens out its wings and covers its cheeks, I think that covering of the cheeks is also a, a kind of a, a shadow. So I think that to the greatest extent, for me, uh, shadow is shelter. And shadow is therefore 
hope, yeah, and, and, and it's comfort and it's positive. I guess nighttime, I mean, is, is kind of shadow of the earth, like when, when the earth turns round and the sun is kind of on the other side and then it's, it's shadow, that's, that's night. And we need night to rest and, you know, and charge up and then, and then the day comes back. Um, so as you said, there are different kinds of shadow and, then I, and there's also um, like mountains and stones and that kind of shadow. Yeah, exactly. I've been living on the west coast of Norway a bit and there, there's mountains that um, block out the sunlight in winter. So, so you don't get direct sunlight. You sort of, you're in the shadow of the, of the mountain for a while and that's, uh, it can be quite, um, you kind of start missing the sun after a while, like I do it anyway. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I understand that experience because uh, part of my childhood was spent in my uh, maternal uncle's home. And he built uh, on on the slopes of a small hill, and then there there was also a forest of eucalyptus trees because uh, that was in a place, a part of my kingdom, which is called uh, Itiniko. And so there were there there is this forest of trees just above his uh, compound or his homestead, uh, and then the trees together with the hill makes it such that usually we only experience sunshine when we were there when the sun was almost setting or when it was like from midday and then towards the afternoon. So actually in the morning, some people elsewhere around there would be enjoying sunlight and then we were like sad and there was nothing you can do except you, you went visiting. So, so it feels more or less like the same kind of experience you had in Western Norway there. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Would you Would you like to share another poem with us? I will like to take this one. Uh, it is called uh, Fallen Tree at Public Service. Uh, and the public service here actually refers to a ministry in my country called the Ministry of Public Service and uh, Administrative Reforms. But in most other countries, it's just called the Ministry of Public Service. Uh, this poem was published in 2020. 2016 in my collection called If You Must Fall Bush. Fallen tree at public service. Walking for the ninth time into public service this morning, I saw a fallen poor tree on a tent and began mighty mooning. This palm-like tree has seen same persons countless times come and go, sit and stand on that dirty tent for no reason. Then he sighed and sighed and sighed, complaining to stone ears of public service personnel who compel users into tears and fears. When weary winds ran past last night, this tree trembled and fell under the weight of its frustrations onto a tent to ring the final bell as a warning to public service personnel against bureaucracy. Because when foreign B disappears, we must embrace democracy. Even now, the poor tree's branches still on abandoned tent sleep, as do the public service workers who on documents fall asleep. If you are wicked to human, 
can you care for a fallen tree? If you cannot treat fires on time, can you bury a dead tree? If you don't mind teachers and retirees, can you mind a tree? If you are inhuman to humans, can you be human to a tree? As I await my integration, I await the poor tree's burial. When I return for the same integration, will I see the same fallen tree? Yeah, it's um, it's a bit of perspective going on there to that kind of caring. And it feels like, uh, I at least feel like the trees and the, and the natural um, surroundings are like this sort of really solid background um, that that cares in a way. And it makes a really big difference to be able to tune into that. Yeah. Yeah. And I was wondering, like, do you do you see people as as quite removed uh, from that, or or do you see us as kind of part of uh, of our surroundings? Uh, I I think people just forget. Uh, some people just forget that we are part of our surroundings. Uh, yes, uh, in terms of. Uh, vocabulary in terms of semantics it is also true that to to some extent uh, the use of the term environment has made uh, people sometimes uh, conceive of themselves as being here and then uh, nature or the environment is there surrounding them and that's why some people uh, now uh, push for, for for more of the use of ecology or ecological in most instances where we might have want to use uh, environmental for the reasons that when you uh, look at it from the ecological lens or perspective, we, we quickly and immediately recognize that we are in this web, we are in this interrelated web uh, with other creatures, with other species, with other uh, objects and things that uh, co-inhabit uh, the earth or the world with us. So, yeah. But some people don't just go about their daily activities as as if any other thing that matters is human and, and, and the needs and the wants and the worries and the troubles and the problems of the human species. It's very easy to forget. And I do as well, easily, like in my daily life, to just forget. And then suddenly there's small reminders that help. And I think too that um, the element of for the forgetfulness uh, is more uh, commonplace, uh, especially among people who have other vital needs. I'm thinking here about people who live in extreme poverty. Yeah, when, when, yeah. When, when people are in extreme poverty, there is also a higher tendency uh, to to not care, or it's not really like the forget. But I think it's also a matter of priority because some people will now have to prioritize. So there is a difference like between somebody in a big capital city, whether it's the capital city of, of Cameroon like Yaoundé or the capital city of, let's say, Denmark here in Copenhagen or Norway in Oslo, who is maybe middle class and has enough food to eat. But there is a difference between those kind of people and, and, and who have the means to go to hospital if they are sick or, or they have maybe social welfare that takes care of that. But then if you see somebody... Uh, in a rural area, perhaps in the same Cameroon, who has no income and 
I should not even say in the rural area, maybe in the suburbs, yeah, let's say in the suburbs or in the slums of the same city. Because one thing that, one interesting thing about cities everywhere is that cities play out or perform a social reality in an interesting way that in the same city you find the rich and the poor living together and, and then with these geographical demarcations like you have the, the central town downtown and then you have people in the slums so uh, some people yeah some people will live in the slums and are struggling to have some piece of bread for their next morning tea might have to give priority uh, to that exercise of trying to get the bread more than remembering or recalling that they are part of a, an interconnected web of, with other species, including plants and, and animals and stuff like that. I think that's true to a certain extent, but at the same time, I really feel like here living in Oslo, um, in Norway, there's a lot, uh, there's a lot of privileged people and um, on some level, there is. Uh, it seems like people care, but yet life is quite uh, based on the, the only human world, and where, for example, the economy is so much based on oil and on things that are like totally not uh, friendly to other species and, and really um, uh, intent on, on on wiping out a lot of species. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the awareness doesn't really go that deep. There's maybe a lot of talking about it and being like, oh, yes, I grow this and that sounds good. But, but actually, to the extent that it really goes into people's lives, into people actually making decisions um, that can make a difference, that's, that's seemingly as hard for people here as, as, uh, as if they were struggling uh for for their livelihood but they're not but it's just this you know this d distance in between action and um and deeper understanding and what's happening so uh and i think i i agree with you absolutely um and then now the 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 difference is in terms of the cause or 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 the factors responsible for for this behavior as in the people that are just uh, evoked a few uh, seconds or minutes ago, and then this scenario too that you are describing, yeah, which is quite commonplace within uh, our cities, uh, especially in the Western world or in the Northern Hemisphere. And I think that uh, the fu the fundamental uh, contributing factor here is capitalism, because it's uh, most people who are privileged, but not all, but most, a majority of people who are privileged and who are wealthy uh, up in the north, but also even in the south, are people whose source of wealth uh, is linked to some kind of damage on the environment. So, uh, yeah, and so they deliberately will not want to care or, or would not want to, to, to listen. Yeah. I, I think you get what I'm driving at. Because somebody who, whose money, yeah, whose money comes from maybe importing timber that, that is cut uh, randomly or chaotically from trees, uh, from forest, maybe in Cameroon or Congo Brazzaville or Congo Kinshasa and shipped here. And he knows actually how many of those trees are cut per day, but also how many innocent trees are even destroyed in the process of wanting to cut the, the specific tree he wants. That kind of person will not uh, have so much interest, will not care about what happens when uh, 
lots of other trees fall along with the tree he needs. And even the tree he needs, he will not care about the impact of it, uh, not being where he used to be. And the same thing goes for people who invest like in the fossil fuels or who, yeah, whose wealth comes from like the oil you just mentioned that, that is quite um, abundant in, in Norway. So capitalism, I think, is a leading uh, factor for, for, for such people not so they like they just deliberately do not want to 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 care about these things. It's not like they're not aware of them. But the problem is that there is a clash a clash of interest. Yeah, yeah. Is uh is there another poem you'd like to share? It is titled uh, "Leaves on Leave." So like the leaves of trees when they go on leave or when they go on vacation or when they go on holiday or when they go when they take a break. Uh, and it was published in 2015 in uh, Bites of Insanity. Leaves on leave. Sometimes trees' green fingers stand still like reposing harbingers of hope and despair. They meditate on our ignorance of them who medicate us when disease boggles into our souls taking us unawares like April Fool's. At times, tree branches and leaves come to a halt and fold up their sleeves. Like parentless kids, they stand still, holding ozone crisis meetings until God's silent servants come and sway them from anger to anger wiping away the spells of fear that cloud our faces. Each time leaves go on leave, leaving no traces of further existence for man who digs his graves whenever he murders figs. The figs that link us to the unseen being who reveals his presence in man's well-being. But when God's blowing sons and daughters sweep across earth, letting twigs leave their fathers, falling twigs and dried leaves clatter and produce celestial music to flatter man, while lizards play basses with tails and flying fowls chant solos and tales, then man joins this universal worship going down on knees to supplicate, supplicate God's fellowship. Then man joins this universal worship, going down on knees to supplicate God's fellowship, feeding his doubting heart with conviction as Christ's promises come to completion, revealing the active hands of a father invisible who marvels his creatures with things invincible. When these invisible but active servants of God gather more momentum and synergy with the sun, leaves wither, tree trunks go epileptic, while robes migrate and mortal man gets to concentrate on these leaves and stems which go on retirement to remind him of his own imminent retirement. It's a bit like listening to um, a storyteller. I've grown up with a lot of stories um, and just going into that whole world. Thanks. Thanks for that compliment.
Maybe it's because I was a very curious kid. Yeah. I was very, very curious. And that might be one of the reasons why I'm a writer today. I was so curious. And like I, I, I asked my mother lots of questions and then other people around. In the beginning of this conversation, you said a little bit about your childhood and the plants uh, around. And I wondered if you could say something more about children growing up today and how we relate to them about the, the natural um, botanical environment. Yeah, I think that's, that's an area of, the, of great importance and interest uh, to me, as it may be to you and, and other people who have, in, who have yeah, some, some concern for the environment. Generally, um, I feel I regret, I feel a lot of remorse or when I think about children nowadays, whether they are my children or some other person's children, but who, and whose parents grew up in the kind of environment where I grew, and then the, the children are now growing in cities like Yaoundé Douala in Cameroon or Kinshasa or whether it's Paris in France or, or Stockholm in Sweden or Washington. The, the, the thing is that a lot of children are now uh, not able to experience, to have a connection with, the, with nature. Uh, well, it's true that nature is everywhere, so we, we will not want to fall into that trap of treating nature as like, okay, nature is only when I go into a forest, only when I get to, into a bush. Yeah, we, we all agree uh, that nature is everywhere and that we are in the nature and that even the, the houses where we live, uh, and we are making this uh, interview now, they are in nature. But but there is a special connection when the children actually go out from these man-made things like the houses and the cars and the planes and they really get into uh, the bushes or the farmlands and the forest where they find things, most of which are just the way they were from the beginning. So while in the Nordic countries, in the Scandinavia, uh, I think there is this new model of education that allows for child play, children playing outside uh, a lot and sometimes even taking children into the forest. I think that's quite common here in, in Denmark and in Finland, but also in Norway and Sweden. That is not the case in many other countries south of here to begin with. Uh, and then it's not also very common within the big cities in Africa. And uh, I, sometimes I just feel like eventually in my life, if everything is the way I, I, I pray should be, I should be able to live close to a place, especially maybe where I was born, where my children can have that connection again, to be able, because I remember the very fun activities I had as a child in connection with nature, going in to fetch wood, because you know, like where I grew up, you will hardly find somebody who is using a gas cooker or, or something of the sort. We, we usually, use wood to make fire and for cooking and, and for any other uh, domestic uh, purposes. And, and then children like us, when we returned from school, it was our duty to help our parents who were maybe still in the farms, who have the duty to go into the farms, either to meet them in the farm and fetch wood there, or when there was no wood in the farms, they would go into a kind of wild bushes, but which are not so wild or terrible. Where you would fetch wood, you collect a dry, pieces of wood and tie them in a bundle and carry them and bring them home. And all of those things have taught me uh, memorable lessons, have given me memorable experiences. And I think they, they, they have really shaped my connections and my relation to nature. 
But I regret that many children nowadays do not have that uh, possibility. Yeah, so I think we, we need to think about that more and more, wherever we are, whether we are in the north or we are in the south, we are in the western world, or we are, wherever we are, we need to, to think about that. Thank you. I would really, really like to thank you for this opportunity, because I, I think this is a great honor for me, uh, because this is a program you, you run uh, most of the time with uh, females or with women, and then I am lucky to be the third male person you have given that exemption to participate here and also to to have the the opportunity to, to bring my own perspectives from from not only africa but because africa is a very big continent with 54 countries but most specifically my Mbasa kingdom in, in cameroon and i i think that is is something i must thank you for uh, because this puts me in in dialogue in conversation not only with you but with potentially uh, people who follow your your program in Norway, in Denmark, in Sweden, because uh, we must admit that this is one of the, the areas of Europe where there is a lot going on in terms of uh, environmental awareness and stuff like that. So uh, as we will say in Basa, it's been an absolute pleasure, the poems, the conversation, and uh, yes, that was uh, with Mala.